the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. The prospect of a single, pretty small container ship running on green methanol in two years' time may not be the sort of headline to put the world at ease as Europe burns and the world's climate scientists look increasingly terrified by their own forecasts of looming climate Armageddon. But bear with us on this one. Maersk's methanol plans are worthier of our attention this week. Six months after it first committed to having a dual-fuel feeder ship running on carbon-neutral methanol by 2023, Maersk has finally this week secured a partnership capable of producing the 10,000 tonnes of annual supply it needs to hit that target. Now, the production may be pretty small by global methanol industry standards, but the partnership is being touted as a potential blueprint to scale green fuel production for shipping. That is significant because Maersk has pledged that all of its new builds from 2023 onwards are going to be capable of running on carbon-neutral means. And as we know, Maersk has an awful lot of ships. So their plans are going to require a pretty rapid scaling up of operations if green methanol is going to account for even a part of that initial phase of the pledge. Context, however, is always going to be key. There are around 98 million tonnes of methanol produced every year, emitting 300 million tonnes of CO2 during its use and production. Less than 200,000 tonnes of that production is green methanol, most of that being biomethanol. So scaling up the roughly 20 or so global pilot projects currently running is going to be no mean feat, and it's going to take more than a solar farm in southern Denmark to get it off the ground. That's the challenge, but if Maersk are right, and we're looking at a blueprint for a future where abundant carbon-neutral methanol can be considered part of the mix, then that's worth talking about. E-methanol is able to reduce 94% of greenhouse gas compared to fossil fuel alternatives, such as LNG, MGO, and even liquefied biogas. So that's a substantial saving that is going to accelerate shipping's zero-carbon future. And if we can rely on effective policy to be put in place, then we're going to see a lot more of this type of fuel being produced and a lot more of it coming into the maritime sector. So this week, I'm bringing you two conversations around the topic of methanol. First, I talked to Berit Hinnemann, Head of Decarbonisation Business Development at AP Moller Maersk, about why she's so excited about the prospect of fueling a single ship. Then I talked to Chris Chatterton, COO of the Methanol Institute, about scale. But we also revisit the thorny issue of carbon accounting and why measuring maritime emissions demands a well-to-wake approach. That's important because apart from clarity of regulation, one of the key issues holding back demand for fuels like green methanol is a lack of transparency regarding the so-called life cycle emissions of fuel production. Anyway, before we get to that, let's start with Maersk. Well, welcome to the podcast, Barrett Hinneman, Head of Decarbonisation Business Development at Maersk Line. Um, Maersk today have announced that they've secured the supply chain for their um, e-methanol ambitions, which is significant because when Maersk uh, put out their their bold ambition to become carbon neutral, methanol was targeted, but you did so without knowing where it was going to come from. We now know that you've got a partner. So give us some idea of how you see this playing out uh, from 
what is essentially a test to what I'm assuming is going to be a fairly large scale operation. How's that going to play? Thank you for that question. And also, yes, we didn't know where the methanol was going to come from. But what was clear to us already at the time is that collaboration with partners across the value chain is a key element of creating that green methanol supply chain because it's, uh, it doesn't uh, exist uh, at scale today. So, so, so we see that we can uh, do this in, in collaboration to uh, develop the facility and to, to address um, all the issues that come with, uh, uh, with upscaling this. And, um, and what we really see that partnerships like this, that those could be the blueprint in how to address uh, creating this uh, green methanol supply chain and also how to really scale it up. Mm. And for those listeners not familiar with the process, what we're talking about here is using renewable energy in order to facilitate the production of e-methanol. That is right. I mean, here we are talking about green e-methanol and that is produced uh, by um, uh, renewable energy, which is uh, then used for electrolysis to produce hydrogen. And then uh, biogenic CO2 is the other feedstock, and those two are used to produce the green e-methanol. Which is interesting, and it has real potential. But right now, um, my figures that I'm looking at suggest there's around 98 million tonnes of methanol produced each year. Less than 200,000 tonnes of that is green methanol. Yes. Most of that being biomethanol. So... For anybody looking at this and wondering how, A, Maersk is going to scale that operation, but B, how this could potentially be a pathway for others to follow, that's a bit of an issue right now. What's your thoughts in terms of you know how we move this on from just being a, a test operation effectively? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're completely right. I mean, what we also communicated previously that the upscaling of the production, that is the key challenge in this. And uh, the way we see it is that the technologies for this are available. But one of the key things that need to be done is to drive down production costs mm. by scaling up the project. And, um, and, uh, and for this, the first green fuel projects, I mean, they really require this close partnership to, uh, uh, to make them happen and to then also uh, develop and mature the process and uh, drive down the costs, which is a key factor to, uh, to upscale this technology. Mm. And uh, in terms of the uh, uh, routes to green methanol, both biomethanol and e-methanol, we see both of them to be important and we need both of them to be scaled up uh, in order for this to be an option uh, for shipping for us and for others. I mean, as, as signals go, Maersk uh, coming in is probably as loud as the shipping industry can make their intention felt. But we've also seen others really move into this uh, area as well over the last months. Do you think there is a, a ramping up of interest because of the word you used, available? You know, it is one of the only immediately available technologies that we have in order to make some progress right now. Yes, I would think so, because uh, green methanol is a route available to us now, because uh, engines are existing, there are uh, ships uh, fueled by, um, by methanol in operation, so because we believe this is a decade of action. I mean, mm. it has become very clear from the IPCC report that, uh, that, uh, that there is an urgency to address the climate crisis, and therefore it is important to pursue the options that are there. And mm. we see methanol as an option that is available and uh, that we are pursuing 
alongside others, which then uh, uh, first will be ready later on. And, and and that really is key. I mean, the IPCC report that you mentioned, we talked about in last week's podcast, you know, bringing, you know, that urgency, you know, described as code red for humanity. I mean, we're, we're not talking in isolation here. We're talking amidst, uh, you know, huge amount of political pressure being brought to bear on shipping. Uh, we have COP coming up uh, at the end of the year. We have various intercessional uh, IMO meetings and the MEPC um, towards the end of the year as well. We need to see some progress. And that issue of what is available now versus what we could potentially do in the future really is key in terms of being able to make some progress that is going to at least allow shipping to say we have made some steps in the right direction. Absolutely. And also, we don't see there being a silver bullet solution. We need to pursue all the solutions uh, uh, that are viable. And we need to make uh, uh, progress on this uh, urgently on many fronts. And also one aspect I would like to uh, mention is that our customers, they need those solutions as well. I mean, half of our customers are setting very ambitious uh, climate targets and they need those uh, decarbonized solutions to be available to them also. Mm. And finally, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that, you know, this is uh, a partnership, it's a supply chain issue. Uh, and we talk about collaboration being the key to unlocking a lot of these these questions. But this is a really tangible example of that. How difficult was it for Merce to go out and, and, and find this partnership? Because I think it's notable that you, you set out the ambition before having the details here. You know, presumably this was the most important part of, you know, your ambition being realized. Yes. Yes, that is that is true. I mean, as we communicated earlier, this was one of the key challenges, the sourcing of the green fuel. And um, and what we have worked on is to to really uh, develop and have a lot of discussions on how such a partnership uh, uh, needs to look like to actually create this uh, supply chain. And 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 we really uh, hope and believe that that could be a blueprint for how to set up those partnerships to really scale up the uh, production uh, of the green fuels, because uh, this is this this is the only way that this can be done. Wonderful. Uh, Barrett Henneman, Head of Decarbonisation Business Development at Maersk. Thank you for joining the Lloyd's List podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Next up is Chris Chatterton, COO of the Methanol Institute. And we start by talking about how there has been a shift in the way that the industry needs to assess maritime emissions and why it's so essential that we move rapidly to a well-to-wake approach that considers emissions related to the full production cycle of fuels. That way, policymakers can have a more complete picture of the environmental profile of marine fuels and, in doing so, determine a path to true net carbon neutrality. A quick word of warning here. Um, Chris was talking to me from Singapore where there was a little bit of background noise towards the end. So apologies for the slightly shaky sound quality in parts. Sometimes it just cannot be helped. We we, we now see uh, things moving towards a CO2 equivalent basis, which is a a major shift in the thinking because if you recall just... um, uh, about two years ago, we were only concerned with uh, uh, a reduction in the sulfur limit, and we were we were looking at IMO 2020 fuel. Uh, then we we, we moved uh, closer towards uh, uh, CO2 reduction, and now um, we're we're beginning to consider at at the MEPC level um, 
CO2 equivalent. So we will begin to um, to, to assess uh, the range or the basket of greenhouse gases, if you will, as well as local pollutants uh, when, when making our, our assessment of the suitability long-term of any particular fuel. And that's why you see some, some pushback now uh, on LNG and, and, and perhaps uh, to, to a lesser extent even, uh, even on ammonia. And it's, ammonia isn't even um, you know, really in the picture as, as of yet. So, mm. yeah, life cycle assessment is the, is the methodology and the tool that, that allows us to, to evaluate uh, these fuels. This is not something new. Um, you know, there, there are standards uh, for LCA uh, analysis <clears throat> available in the markets. Uh, I mean, the, the, the objectives are of, an, of a life cycle assessment are to, to first to determine the environmental impacts, comparing uh, products of the same function, and then, then we look at how to evaluate uh, any particular processes within that value chain and compare them. And then, and then we, we seek to improve these products uh, as we go along. And um, by breaking it down into these various uh, stages, we can, we can come up with a, uh, a, a very accurate uh, way to, 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 to evaluate them on, a, on an emissions scale from, say, cradle to gate and then from cradle to use. So the, taking into account the, the entire uh, life cycle. Um, and and this, this, is a, this is a de-risking element, which allows us to uh, not jump too far ahead of ourselves. And maybe we, you know, we, we, uh, we, we're putting our betting, we're, we're say betting on the wrong horse, you know, for example, and, uh, and taking more of a, a long-term view on it. So. And it becomes tricky because this idea of counting for emissions that are generated upstream is an area where obviously the ship owners and the shipping industry has little control over mm-hmm. how that is regulated and, and and what happens before it gets into their tank and therefore there is some nervousness yep. that being held accountable for things that you have little control over is going to cause problems in terms of how this irons out in terms of the carbon accounting yep. uh, it's also very tricky for the IMO to regulate such things so considering it at the moment is very much done on an advisory basis. You're pushing for a slightly more structured version of that. Yes, correct. Um, I mean, in, in addition to say climate change, um, you know, which which obviously is is uh, is uh, collectively gathering these you know things such as greenhouse gases, which we're discussing at the IMO level. Um, it also includes other areas such as. Uh, acidification and marine uh, eutrophication, PM, of course, you know, these local uh, pollutants, uh, as well as ozone formation. So, you know, there there are many additional items that that aren't uh, even being uh, addressed at the moment. So uh, it it would be very good to to get on with it and and, and accept uh, the LCA methodology uh, and so we can begin to discuss in more detail on, on how to do it collectively as an industry. Uh, the, the same thing is, is taking place uh, very rapidly in, in other industries. I mean, we're, we're, from the, we're from the methanol sector, and this is, you know, we're split between chemicals as a feedstock and, and, uh, and fuel. Uh, our product uh, goes into both almost equally. And I can say that within the chemical side of the business, this is uh, this has been taking place uh, already for, for a number of years, 
and um, and we're quite focused on this area and this uh, uh, lower carbon or or uh, uh, net zero carbon approach uh, to, to the production of the product is uh, becoming uh, much more prevalent and uh, it's being driven by the markets and by uh, uh, you know, those that are not only buying the product but that are producing so it's mm. taking place at all points within the value chain well, let's, let's talk about what this would imply for methanol, because, I mean, let's be clear here, in terms of the percentage of methanol that is being produced today that is green, uh, it's it's still a relatively small fraction of, of the overall production, is it not? So presumably Correct. the life cycle assessment of methanol accounting for how it is produced right now is going to have an impact in terms of the overall sort of viability of methanol as a as a green fuel. What where is methanol in that process and that transition to becoming a truly green fuel? Um, well, at the moment, uh, and say with respect to to shipping, uh, there there is now a combined uh, say aggregate capacity between biomethanol and renewable methanol. Uh, bio is obviously uh, from a biogenic source. Uh, renewable is, say, from electricity or from renewable-powered uh, electrolysis, for example. There, there is a little over 200,000 metric tons uh, produced at the moment uh, in aggregate globally. And these are small projects. There's probably uh, about, you know, uh, the number of projects is somewhere around 20 at the moment. And they're in various stages of, of production. Some of them are already beginning to scale up. But this is enough. Uh, this is enough um, lower carbon methanol to actually power all the dual fuel methanol vessels on the water today. So, uh, you know, if that's any indication of the ability of of, uh, of the sector to to rise to the to the occasion, so to speak, and um, and supply enough product uh, in line with demand. Yeah, it's we're already there, and and there's no policy in place to support any of this. So mm. the, the the physical demand for this product to burn it in a ship is not there yet. Um, mm. But on a but again, uh, conventional methanol is being burned uh, on all these vessels uh, for some years now, already uh, over five years, and uh, with very good results, uh, both uh, operationally as well as uh, from a capital expenditure cost perspective and uh, we see this as uh, a trend that's going to pick up uh, much more interest going forward uh, and especially given the given uh, uh, the trend that's taking place as I, I made mention to with respect to um, a co2 equivalent uh, basis for assessment so methanol even conventional methanol on this basis uh, provides a, a significant reduction compared to mm. HFO or LSFO. This issue of what can we do now versus <clears throat> what potentially might be available down the line is is really at the heart of those decisions. Now, you know, Maersk has clearly said that, you know, action is required now. They are pledging that, you know, their new buildings are going to be come neutral from 2023 onwards. Um, you know, this this methanol project is a, is a key part of that. Now, that's been warmly welcomed by those in the industry that you know, want to see that tangible effort to accelerate the decarbonisation, but it's also been criticised by others who question whether you know methanol can ever really become carbon neutral at that scale. Now, 
you know, there's debates on both sides, but you're really pushing that uh, sort of available reduction right now. What does the sort of methanol transition look like uh, in, say, sort of 15 to 20 years, which we'd be sort of considering in terms of that lifespan of that vessel? Uh, how, how do you see this playing out in, in, a, in a best case scenario from your perspective? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, currently, at the moment, just sort of to put things in context, um, if we look at the global warming potential of, of say, e-methanol, the methanol produced from natural gas, and, and say maybe coal, just to, on the other extreme, and we look at it as, uh, say, kilograms of CO2 equivalent per, per kilogram of, of methanol. Um, and this is just based on, you know, again, comparing to, to fossil-based methanol. So e-methanol provides about a, uh, about a 1.3 uh, kilogram CO2 equivalent reduction. Uh, so it's actually negative. So it's a, a negative 1.3 kilograms. So uh, methanol is almost like a, like a carbon sink yeah? well, until it's combusted. Uh, natural gas-based methanol is, is about a, not, not, not quite uh, 0.5 kilos CO2 equivalent per kilogram of, of, uh, of methanol, uh, like uh, global warming potential, yeah? So, and then coal is, is about three. It's, it's, it's much, uh, it's less clean, so to speak, three kilos. So we can significantly, we, we've already seen that we can significantly reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, substantially with the use of, with the inclusion, I guess you could say, or blending thereof, uh, renewable or, or biomethanol for that matter. And um, what I mean substantially, uh, e-methanol is, is able to, say, post-combustion, uh, reduce 94% of greenhouse gas compared to fossil alternatives such as LNG, MGO, or even uh even liquefied biogas, yeah. Um, so, and it's even uh, much less than, than biomethanol. Uh, so, uh, and, and here we're getting down to something like, you know, 2.6 grams of CO2 equivalent per ton kilometer. So, uh, it's substantial savings. And um, uh, if, we, if, we, if we can um, rely on effective policy to be put in place, uh, then uh, we will see uh, a lot more of this type of fuel being produced and a lot more of it coming into the marine sector and uh, and thus allowing uh, the, those uh, vessel owners and, and charters to to be able to, to really effectively manage and uh, with good visibility their uh, their greenhouse gas reductions. Mm, okay. And you mentioned the all-important policy issue there. We, we're talking, you know, in advance of a, a couple of intercessionals for the IMO's Marine Environment Protection Committee coming up over the next few months. But the big one, of course, is uh, the MEPC in November. And, of course, we also have COP, um, the uh, big international um, gathering that's going to be held here in, in the UK uh, later this year. All of that is happening at a time where there is, generally speaking, you know, an accelerated demand for action from the industry. Um, how would you assess the current sort of status of the, sort of the regulatory debate within shipping? Um, 
you know, what, what, what can we anticipate seeing over the next few MEPCs with regards to this sort of well to wake and, um, you know, support mechanism that, you know, is going to be required for ship owners to make decisions about the uptake of sustainable fuels? How, how, what's, your, what's your characterization of where we are? Well, if uh, if some of the recent um, policy proposals, which which have been discussed and debated at IMO, or any indication, then um, I think it seems that uh, we can expect some 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 major steps and some major uh, policy uh, announcements uh, over the next eighteen months, twenty four months, and I think we'll get we'll get uh, much closer to where we need to be. Um, of course, you know th- there were there were uh, quite a few people who were not very happy with the last uh, MEPC 76 outcome. Uh, but again, this was this was the, the the initial meeting where things were just kind of kicking off, and um, I think over the course of the next 12 months, we'll we'll see a lot more activity there, and um, I think we'll see people stepping up because. Uh, uh, there are many uh, private organizations which are just uh, having to get on with it because of their their exposure to to other industries. Yeah, this cross industry ex- exposure, which uh, um, you know, which is driving a lot of the uh, a lot of the initiatives around um, lowering emissions. But having said that, um, you know, in, in shipping, we're still highly reliant on on the IMO to not only come up with the the, the the right policy, which is which is going to uh, to make it fair for everyone, but also how to enforce it, and um, and how to you know reward those for for stepping up, as well as uh, penalize those who who you know will choose to you know maybe you know take advantage of the of the system with a lack of enforcement. So um, and then that will take time, but uh, but the the policy that's that's been put in place, that's been proposed. Uh, at the last uh, MEPC, I think was was uh, not that aggressive. Yeah, it's it's not that uh, difficult. Uh, I would say for for those vessel owners to to achieve those uh, those uh, proposed reductions, and um, maybe it's not enough. But uh, but again, it's a start, and um, we're all sort of in uncharted waters, and and there really are no great alternatives. Yeah, I mean there. Mm. There, there, there are more questions than you know, than answers when we when we begin to look at any of these fuels, you know, methanol included. You know. Yeah, but, but I mean, so. if 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 you look at the, the the tone of the sort of technical debate coming out of the the IMO, and then compare that with the um, screaming headlines of code red for humanity coming out of the IPCC. Yeah. You know, there there is a discrepancy there in terms of the urgency. I feel in terms of the tone of the language, in terms of the progression of the debate. Do you think that you know we're going to have to see an accelerated uh, progression, uh, you know, at the IMO in order to you know meet the expectations, not just of you know the member states inside the IMO, but uh, you know more more commercially speaking, you know, the customers of the the shipping companies and global trade that is represented there. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's going to take a, a lot more collaborative efforts uh, globally to, to make to make it work, and uh, again to make it comfortable for everyone to to find their space you know, within this uh, you know within these uh, programs. Um, 
more market-based measures clearly would be a would be a good thing. You know, if we could uh, if we could at least uh, you know agree on a on a carbon taxonomy uh, that that would be a, I think a good step to to get us moving in the right direction. Simple to understand and um, and, and fairly easy to implement. Um, and then there there are other ways. Uh, you know, we, we we see, for example, ESG funding and, and financing measures now coming to play. You have Poseidon principles now that are continuing to to sign up uh, more global banks uh, who, who are primarily funding a lot a lot of these uh, new builds. And um, I, I think it's more than just you know some people will will say it's just greenwashing, but uh, but I think it's it's really coming to bear and, and uh, if you're not seen as doing your part then um, you're, you're kind of not, not not a good corporate citizen so uh, that, that's another key factor in I think in bringing these uh, bringing these initiatives uh, front and center and, um, and getting them adopted well we only allow good corporate citizens to listen to this podcast so I'm sure they will be <laughs> eagerly listening to your words um, but for now uh, Chris Jackson COO of the methanol Institute thank you very much for joining the Lois list podcast. Yeah, thanks very much, Richard. Appreciate it.